Welcome to the Counselor and the Coach podcast. My name is Peter Connolly. I'm a coaching psychologist. And my name is Derwin Coonan. I'm a counselling psychologist. And on this podcast, we hope to cover a variety of different things with regard to life, living, mental health, behaviour, cognition and a variety of other issues. The idea is that we've learned lots from our work, from our experience of working with people in many different settings, and we really love to share this understanding with you. We don't see this as any kind of substitute for professional help. And if you are in need of professional help, we do encourage people to seek the help they need, whether it be counseling, psychotherapy, help from a GP, or even, dare I say it, coaching. It is true to say that our work will prompt ideas for people that may bring up experiences for them. And so the idea of getting further support is something we always really value. For this first podcast, we're going to be looking at grief. And why grief, you might say first? Well, for two main reasons. One is that I myself have experienced uh, the death of three loved ones in the last two years. And given that we're, I suppose, nearly two years into a global pandemic, an awful lot of other people out there have experienced not just death, but loss in a variety of different ways. And it's true to say that with this, there's a little bit of catching up for us to do. The change even in lifestyle for many of us has come as some losses and some gains have come along. And the period of adjustment needed is really what grief is very often about. So it's hard to know how to start out when we're talking about something like this. But one of the things I thought I might do is read a little bit from a, a book that um, I've, I've found myself involved in. Um, one thing I noticed when my father died, so my father died the year before last at the beginning of the pandemic, um, was at his funeral at times I noticed a voice in my head saying, it's not okay to cry. And I found myself thinking about why is that voice there? You know, why is it not okay in that particular occasion where it would seem appropriate for, for, for me to cry? So I came across a book called It's Okay to Be Not Okay by uh, a woman called Megan Devine. And I found it a very useful book. And she sums up a little bit um, some of the, the change that can happen when we lose a loved one. So I'm just going to read a little bit from that and, and then we're going to talk a little more then about, about grief. So we often think of grief as primarily emotional, but grief is a full body, full mind experience. You're not just missing the one you've lost, your entire physiological system is reacting too. Studies in neurobiology show that losing someone close to us changes our biochemistry. There are actual physical reasons for your insomnia, your exhaustion, and your racing heart. Respiration, heart rate, and nervous system responses are all partially regulated by close contact with familiar people and animals. These brain functions are all deeply affected when you've lost someone close. Grief affects appetite, digestion, blood pressure, heart rate, respiration, muscle fatigue, and sleep, basically everything. If it's in the body, grief affects it. In addition to physical effects, Cognitive changes, memory loss, confusion, and shortened attention spans are all common in early grief. Some effects even last for years, and that's perfectly normal. 
It's true on so many levels, losing someone changes you. And she goes on to talk about grief in the early stages being in what she describes as a liminal state or an in-between state, that we're, we are effectively changed by the loss of somebody. And there's a, in, in, in change in organizations, we often talk about the neutral zone, that you go into a kind of a period of really not knowing quite where you are. And certainly I would have experienced that over, over the last while. What about you, Dermot? Have you had... I suppose it, I, 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 one of the things I'd say about what you're saying is that my experience would be that the getting to know someone, that change happens to us as well. Mm-hmm. The change of getting to know someone. Now, if you're born into a family and they're family members, you won't notice that. But a friend, you know, you get to know them. You grow into the change of that because... I believe in the relational self, the self as a series of relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the sudden change of a loss is the sudden absence, physical absence of that person. Mm -hmm. So while I believe that uh, the process of building up a friendship or a connection takes time and is gradual, in some ways it's almost like the the grief is the opposite to that. Mm -hmm. It's, It's much more rapid, much more sudden but it's something that is a felt sense that we have to come to terms with almost like the body has to catch up with the loss yeah it's interesting you should say that so the three people who've died for me in the last two years are my father at the beginning of the pandemic then my mother uh, about a year ago a little less and my sister then about three months ago and my sister interestingly she would have been divorced and she would have got divorced around the time that my one of my other sisters died. And she described the grief of the breakup of the relationship being as significant as the grief of the loss of my sister. You know, and, and really it is all about, to a large degree, about the relationship, isn't it? It's, it brings up a lot about your relationship to yourself and your relationship to the other people. Um, And certainly some of the things I've felt in the last while have been the loss of the contact, the loss of, I won't see them again, so I can't make up for things I haven't done before. You know, so I'd love an opportunity to, to see my father again, to talk to him about certain things. I miss ringing my mother to chat with her about events that have happened in my life. And uh, similar with my sister. My sister would have been my closest confidant. So I, I miss that relationship very, very strongly. And they're like, they're almost like holes. You know, it's almost like, you know, I sometimes think of my, my mind sees the world as a series or a network of relationships. And where those relationships are there, there's a, somewhat of a, of a, of a hole. Now, even though there's still memories of the person, there's something missing. And of yes. course, it's, it's the physical. It's yeah. the, you know, yeah. the, the person is no longer in the world. Yeah. And my mind has to get used to that fact. Yeah. When I pass by my sister's house, I find it difficult to think that she's not there anymore. In fact, a part of me kind of believes she still is. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. it's and there's something about that I'm wondering for you, Peter, around the idea of the roundedness of our non-grieving lives. That we like well-rounded stories. Mm-hmm. You know, we 
reaffirm that again and again every time we take up a new show on Netflix or wherever it is. We love that story arc. We love that roundedness. And I'm wondering within the whole that you, you connect with in relation to grief, if that's also something of it not being fully rounded. Mm -hmm. Do you know, unfinished yeah. business? Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely think there's there's always an element of the unfinished. You know, um, you know, having lost a sister when I was 20, I'm now 50, nearly 55, um, I think there was significant amount of unfinished business there. And to some degree, it's still unfinished. Yes. Yeah, you know, you, yeah. you, you never, because you can't be in the physical presence of that person anymore. Interestingly, though, you can sort of be in the psychological presence of the person. Well, this is what I'm really uh, interested about in relation to yourself, Peter, is you have, you know, more or less 30 years experience of the loss of a sister who meant so much to you. Hmm. And I'm wondering how that loss and that in ways, because at other times you described it almost like as an ongoing, an ongoing relationship. Mm. It's different in its nature, but it's an ongoing relationship. Do you feel, do you envisage that that will inform your relationships with the more recent uh, loved ones who you've lost? Yeah, I, I, I think it did and does. Losing someone so early and needless to say, getting into therapy and psychology quite early in life made me realize that a lot of the time the relationship you're having with someone is in your mind you know um, a lot of the thinking you do about someone is not necessarily in their presence and so you say to yourself well, well, well who am I talking to there you know if I'm talking in my mind to my sister or I'm regurgitating something that happened with my sister who am I really talking to? Because uh -huh. she's not here right now. Yeah. And you realize it's, it's kind of with yourself. Yes. You know, there's an element of the relationship is always there with yourself. Yeah. And you're trying to, in some way, reconcile that, uh -huh. you know, and come to, come to a conclusion. Yeah. You know, I realized that with my relationship with my parents, mm. that at some point I had to stop expecting them to be mummy and daddy and see them as human beings who were just trying to live their life. Which you know? is a, a very important part of the natural changing relationships we have with living people. I mm. do remember when my own dad went to hospital and he was, he was struggling health-wise, he was suffering. And I do remember, you know, looking to be a support, to be a caring support and it was much more an adult to adult connection and in later stages of his illness i felt more like a parent to him mm. and and i felt that that was uh, a real honor to be able to have that relationship yeah. move in those ways and evolve in those ways yeah yeah i i, I would have felt that to some degree more with my, with my mother um where i would have be, become a kind of a confidant with her but then it became more adult, adult, and yeah. then eventually, me being more like a parent. She she got dementia before she died, so you know you you have to become a little bit more parental, more nurturing, sure. more accepting, uh -huh. that, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, it's um, 
there may be blurred lines though within the sense of identity <clears throat> in the relational self as i as i described it and uh, you know i was looking recently at constellation therapy which is intergenerational therapy mm. and it really follows the concept that i am the embodiment of all my ancestral history but you, you bring that down to the the most immediate family and in ways i embody aspects of the challenges the strengths the values, the confusion of the deceased loved ones within my immediate family. Mm. And in some ways, their resolution is within me and their challenges and unresolved is, remains within me. And then we move from there to a more theoretical model, internal family systems, which says we internalize ideas of father, of mother, of brother, of sister, which is similar maybe in ways to Jungian archetypes of the archetypal mother mm -hmm. father figure but uh, but has a flavor of the actual father we had the actual mother we had the actual sister or brothers we've had mm. and i think that in ways it's okay for this communication and conversation to happen for me with someone like my, my dad as an ongoing thing whether or not he happens to be on the other end of the line yeah it's 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 interesting um one thing I found in the last two years uh, that has become, it was always there to some degree. I had an interest in my family history, but in the last two years, it has become very significant. And I found myself going back in birth registers and going back to an old family tree and, you know, trying to find a little bit more about my mother's background, my mother's mother's background, my great-grandfather, you know, this this kind of thing. Um, so that idea of being an embodiment of, of a history is, is, is quite interesting, I think. Um, and it's quite a, a solidifying sort of a thing. Um, because one of the things I noticed, I particularly noticed this in the last few months, is the secure base that a relationship provides for you. You know, um, so I think to, to, to take a, a, a simple example, I think a mother or father with their, their newborn baby, when they're holding their newborn baby, they provide this kind of secure base, both physically and psychologically. Yeah. And I think throughout our lives, I think we, we find those in other places, you know, whether it's through our partners, our friendships, our sisters. And the secure base, the physical secure base is taken away, you know, and, and you, you feel the loss of that secure base, that part of the network. And what I found interesting in that was the, the degree to which I found myself going inward to, to sort of almost escape or hide away from the fact that that's now missing. So for a, for a period... Uh, some of the things I experienced after uh, her death would have been numbness, uh, very deep sadness, but also a desire to run away or go and hide. And it's it's almost like, you know, I have a sense of the security of, of my mother holding me, you know, being gone, yeah. you know, and similar sort of with my sister. You know, now I'm not somebody who tends to need a lot of holding a lot of the time uh -huh. but i had a strong sense after my sister went and 
one interesting facet was my mother died in April of last year and my sister was already in hospital and we were expecting her to go. And she lasted another about seven months after that. And in a way, grieving for my mother was put on hold. Uh-huh. And so, so one of the complicating factors, you know, and they sometimes talk about complicated grief. I, I think all grief is complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the complicating factors of, of the grief I've experienced is, is exactly that, is, uh, okay, so my mum just died, but I have to hold myself together because my sister is dying and I need to be there for her and I need to be there for her husband. Yeah. And, and my other sisters yeah. and my brother and and so that was held mm. you know mm. um and to some degree i would even argue it might even still be it might be still held a little bit yes you know i'm not yeah. sure i've yeah you know uh interesting thing you because we've been particularly in psychology you're sort of brought up on stages yes of grief which i refute quite strongly now Me too. Um, you, you have this sense of I'm going to get to somewhere uh-huh. you know I'm going to get through these stages and I'm going to get to somewhere yeah. and yeah. I, I, I every now and again I kind of feel like yeah when am I going to get onto that stage yeah. or yeah. whatever you know yeah. and it's like but it just doesn't happen like that for sure, you know, for sure. life doesn't happen in no. discrete stages no. and I, I feel in what you're saying as well it, it does remind me in terms of complicated grief the idea that we're caught between uh, an urge towards purpose that the stages concept appeals to there's a purpose there sometimes they talk about tasks of grief I, mm. I need to work through these things yeah and and that sense of purpose is sometimes a denial of the visceral, of what the body's just feeling, yeah. of just what's there. Yeah. So sometimes we have to let go to what the body feels, let go to what the emotions are. Mm-hmm. And then other times we want to, to mop it up. So in ways, it's almost like holding a bucket and, and, and letting, letting the water, the tears spill out of it, while on the other hand holding a purposeful mop to mop it up at the same time <clears throat> absolutely and, and, we, yeah. and sometimes we need to let the the bucket of tears pour and just let them lie for a while absolutely and 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 the, it's interesting that that metaphor that you use because i would nearly add to it in the sense that while i'm doing this mopping business i'll just put this tent around me yeah. so that other people don't see it yeah. because there's definitely a kind of a it's messy and people don't want to have to deal with it. It is an interesting one though, if we to look, even move into looking at sadness and, you know, huge grief and wailing or crying. And yeah. we look at a crying baby and a baby is wailing, crying. Mm-hmm. Now that is potentially equally repulsive. Mm-hmm. Not my baby. I'm on an airplane. Someone get that baby to shut up. Yeah. To it's my baby. Oh, What's wrong with my baby yeah and so it's repulsive to some and the, to those who are connected it draws us closer and says yeah. no it's okay yeah it's okay yeah. and you're allowed to feel that way and we'll try and work this out mm-hmm. and i'm here and so yeah. it's interesting how the same process can be to some repulsive and maybe that's protective in ways well it is and 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 you know it it served it serves functions 
you know, I mean, I'm I'm quite conscious of, you know, I grew up in a time where the belief was big boys don't cry. Yeah. When was the first time in Irish history that an Irish man cried? I think it could have been... Openly. Like, openly. No I think it was 1988 <laughs> when we were <laughs> in a football championship <laughs> and Packy Bonner saved a penalty. I'm pretty sure that was the first moment a yeah. tear went to an Irish Tear Tears of joy. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and, and definitely wailing of, of, you know, that kind of mm. allowing, you know, yeah. deep sadness to just come out. Like the way you would allow it if a, if a baby or your child, you know, when my kids were small, you know, that thing of taking them up into your arms and saying, it's okay, you know, it's okay, you can, you can cry, yeah. you know. Um, but I have, I have a, a, quite a strong memory of um, one of my sisters coming home as an adult, having lost her job. And she burst into tears when she walked into in the door, you know. And I remember my mum saying, don't cry, don't cry, you don't need to cry, you know. And, uh, you know, those messages, I do not blame my mum. My I think this, this was, she was doing the best she could. She was trying to soothe, you know. And so stopping crying seemed like a thing that you should do, you know. Now, I don't think, I don't think one needs to cry forever. No, no. But I do think you have to give yourself permission yeah. to emote. I think you have to give I yourself guess. permission to feel these are awful feelings yes. you're feeling. You yeah. know, this this sadness needs to be felt and needs to be allowed. I think it's almost you know? like to trust it, almost like trusting that a, a spring cascading down a mountain, it will eventually find an attributary or it'll find the sea it'll find its way it can be trusted i do remember a particular moment in my life where i was sad and i couldn't cry and i was a child at the time and i thought oh you need to hold out hope in order to cry and i came to a real realization i didn't have hope at that moment and so i'm not gonna cry because there's because crying, you know, somehow I associated with hope. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. Say a bit more about that. I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand the idea of yeah. association with hope. So it felt to me like uh, I had been a child who'd grown up at times tearful mm. and able to express sadness and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And I was in a situation I felt at the time in a child's mm. view of things that was unresolvable yeah. and wasn't going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And there was not really anyone I could explain the situation to that would uh. hear me, nor would they hear my tears. Yeah. Now, I, I had very loving parents, but I'm not sure they understood what was going on for me at a sense. And maybe I didn't know how to communicate and in fairness to all parties concerned. But I did come to a point where it's like, oh, this is when I'd usually cry. And it's like, why am I not crying? And then it dawned on me that, yeah, crying involves a process that leads you afterwards that you've had a good cry, mm -hmm. you know, that relief you might feel. Yes. It's like, I don't, I don't think I'll get to a relief if I cry now. Okay. And I don't think I'll get to a resolution. Yeah. And I don't think it'll be heard. So almost like, yeah, a, let, a letting go of hope. And that sounds incredibly sad. 
I have to say, it really does. <laughs> and is. it is. We we laugh sometimes, don't yeah. we? Don't we at, at oh, things yeah. that 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 are oh, sad? Yeah. You know, it's it's. And I think yes. it does happen uh-huh. that my tears or my crying won't be heard. Yeah. You know, or there will be no no resolution. And and definitely, I think at a at a death at at a, an extreme loss. You know, and sometimes I mean, you know, even the loss of a job, even the loss of, you know, uh, even being locked down and not being able to go out, you know, yes. is a loss. Yes. You know, th- th- we can sometimes feel that hopelessness. Absolutely. You know, and what difference will my tears make? Yeah. A client might say to me, and over the years, many have said that. What yeah. difference would it make mm-hmm. if I was to to be tearful? How would that help? And and that, again, purpose over over acceptance yeah it speaks to meaning doesn't it it speaks to that idea of you know this loss has taken away so much meaning from me that a part of me says what's the point yeah what's the point and 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 that kind of desperation or hopelessness i've certainly felt and and i have to be honest i felt that over over uh, deaths over the last few years but I've also felt it over COVID over yes. some of the things that have gone on in the world uh-huh. you know and, and you feel a sense of, of, of hopelessness and what I sometimes feel myself responding to with that is is, is the numbness okay yeah okay. so tears won't won't work here so I just go a little bit numb yeah you know and I think that's a kind of a protection as well absolutely you know I allow myself to just numb myself from any thinking and and something eventually reconnects me with life because ultimately we're here to live a life we are you know and within living a life there are times to go into that cave of numbness Mm. and be in there for a little while Mm -hmm. by ourselves yeah and i think that a thought from that although it's not a rush towards recovery and a thought that worked for me within my experience as a child or at least subsequently in therapy was becoming a loving presence to that yeah that i could be a loving presence to that child who was too hopeless to to cry and so that i i cried for the child yeah uh, you know yeah. In, in reconciliation of that experience and in some ways uh, allowing a peace to settle so i i feel that compassionate presence is a very very important part of the grieving process yeah but to find it in the loved ones who are living Mm -hmm. but also ultimately to find it within within ourselves ourselves, yeah you remind me of of Thich Han's um idea of um caring for your baby your baby being you inside and and all of us has that 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 baby who wants to scream out or wants to cry out and needs needs coddling, yes. you know, needs to be wrapped up in a blanket and, and cared for. And if I remember how he described it, he said something like, I breathe in and I hold this screaming, crying baby. Mm-hmm. And I breathe out and I hold this screaming, screaming, crying baby. Yeah. And I breathe in and I hold this screaming, crying baby. Yeah. And it was, again, the allowing, the acceptance, mm-hmm. rather than I'm actually trying to cod this baby or con this baby into calming down by just holding them lovingly. No, yeah. I'm holding them lovingly to allow them to feel all that they're going to feel yeah. for yeah. as long as they need to. And I think it's one of the, 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 the kindest things. Interestingly, um, Megan Devine in, in her book asks, you know, 
how can you be kind to yourself? You know, and I, and I remember asking that of myself early on after my, my sister, my recent sister's death and finding it hard to answer, you know, but, but what you've described there is probably one of the most basic ways that you can be kind to yourself. And that's to allow yourself to feel, allow yourself to permit. Yeah. And I really mean permit the emotions that are there, yeah. you know, w within the body. As loud and as long as they need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's, there's a, what would you say, a relief in permission giving and in holding. And that notion of, of, you know, being able to hold and nurture and care for yourself, I think is, is really, really important. Ultimately, we have to do it for ourselves. But I also believe there's an important thing you have to do and that's reach out, you know, because as I said earlier, initially I found myself wanting to go inward, avoid people a little, <laughs> wrap myself up in a blanket and disappear in a corner. But eventually I think you have to go out to people, Absolutely. you know, you have to reach out and reconnect with people. And there's, there's a challenge in that, you know, because it's a strange sort of a feeling, you know, when when somebody has died. <laughs> I heard somebody describe, you can be very detty. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who I heard say that word, but, yeah. you know, you can be very detty for a while, you know. And, uh, and you are, you're uh -huh. very close to death. You're, yes. you're not necessarily close to it yourself, but uh -huh. you've been exposed You've been close to somebody who died. Sure. And so you've got that feeling. Sure. And we all have what might be a natural fear of death. I don't know. Um, and so you feel a little bit like a pariah. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and no, who's going to want to be near me at the moment, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I've felt the the compulsion to, to step out and reach out as okay. well. And, you know, I found myself sort of saying, yeah, do. Do reach out, you know, pick up the phone, yeah. you know, contact people, you know, even if they even if they haven't been in touch in ages, you know, maybe yes. maybe pick up the phone and a yeah. um, little bit harder during a pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I suppose one of the things that have been uh, a common saving grace for yourself and myself over this pandemic is the exuberant uh, innocence of our respective dogs. Mm. My, my Dougal, your Paddy. Yes. And in ways, I think they also, I think they really do feel things like loss. I think they are sensitive to the emotional lives that we have. And at the same time, they are protective. And at the same time, they are distracted by a cat, a ball, another dog. <laughs> in, in a very vibrant, very alive sort of a way. Yeah. So they can be a reminder to us of the, the, the living life in the present moment for whatever it is the next thrown ball you know the dog for me has been uh wonderful uh, i mean so just a couple of things about, about about the dog so 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 the night that my sister actually died so i was with her in the afternoon for about four hours and then her husband and my other sister were with her that night and i got the call that evening and my sister rang me and she was in tears and eventually I got off the phone. I had held the tears and I got off the phone and then I just 
burst into tears. And the dog got up off his mat, came over and just put one paw on my lap. <laughs> I was like, you need me now, don't you? you know? And it was such a lovely, lovely gesture. And thankfully, I had my, my wife and my eldest son to come and do something similar, which was, was very, very kind and, and loving. But we, we but, need to qualify the fact that Paddy is clearly the reincarnation of some transcendent being. <laughs> another he, life. He does it's seem to be a very, uh, a very intelligent generous, dog. Yeah. Compassionate, loving dog. Yes, he does have a lot of um, a lot of love in him. Um, and the other thing about him is he he's also a, a dog with a lot of need to go out and to go out and meet other dogs and people. Get but he pushed me out the door, yeah. you know, and, you know, so I had to get out and walk uh-huh. in those early stages. You know, I remember feeling I don't I don't want to go out. I don't want to walk. I don't want to walk. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. it's like I want to just sit here in this yes. chair and, yeah. and feel grumpy, yeah. you know, but but, you know, it pushes you out there uh-huh. and, and, and you connect. And at times I remember feeling I don't want to walk down in the park. I want to walk in the forest where I can be alone. And that was OK. And me and the dog could be together. Uh-huh. And there were other times where I'd walk out with other, other people. Yes. But the third thing that, that I've, I've learned from the dog, I haven't learned how yet, uh-huh. but I have noticed with the dog, and it's how they shake off the physical aspect of something. Like if I give out to the dog, which is not very often, uh-huh. but if I do a real giving out to the dog when he's been a little bit bold, yeah. and he shakes it, okay. he shakes it off. You know, and I've seen other dogs do this, you yes, know, yeah. when they get a bit angry or they get yeah. upset with one another and they do a shake, uh-huh. you know. And I sort of said to myself, wouldn't it be great if if, if we could do that? Yes, you know, if you yeah. could shake off some of the physical tension, uh-huh. because definitely, you know, that notion of holding some of the tension of difficult moments and challenging conversations and all of those things, you often hold them for too long afterwards. Yeah. You know, and if you could just sort of give a good shake and, and let them out, give a good cry and, and, and let it out, a good yeah. wail, um, you know, dogs yeah. wail at the moon. I've, yeah. I've always envied them that. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe I do a little bit of that, too. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's something there in in terms of, say, if I was working with someone therapeutically around grief, it is about perspective and time, giving time for how am I feeling physically in this? How am I feeling interpersonally within my own family, uh, with those who've also experienced loss and the way in which the, the loss and grief waves can be out of sync with other people and the challenges of that, the challenge of stepping out the door again, mm-hmm. the challenge of stepping into work again, um, my thought processes my history with that person because sometimes the person we lose we had a longing to resolve more than we got to resolve yeah in, in the lived lives mm. of each other and so there can be that the history of emotional expression or history of sadness and how that comes into the current situation so there's so many uh, rich perspectives to to work on that are not only about grief but they are about deepening my awareness of my existence uh, and the different ways in which I relate to the world. Yeah, um, and it's it's hard to suggest things to people because everybody seems to grieve in their own way. And, you know, I'm always 
you know, wary of yeah. things people suggest as techniques or, yeah. or methods. Like they Sometimes it can feel like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there is there 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 are two things that that I have personally found found useful. And and aside from some of the things we've mentioned, like reaching out and connecting with your dog if you have one, or one is writing. You know, is actually writing down some of your your thoughts and trying to be as as honest as you can just just sort of dumping some of your thoughts onto the page um i've found quite useful um and and the second thing that i've i've found good although i can't always when i'm at my worst i I find it difficult is um is meditation being able to to meditate even if it's just for a couple of minutes to find a way of whether it's a mantra or whether it's focusing on a candle or focusing on the breath, finding a way to just relax the mind a little bit and give the mind a break. Um, because you can be very flooded. You use yes. the word waves and yes. there is no doubt about it. It's, it's like waves of emotion that seem yeah. to seem to come up. Yeah. Um, so for me, that idea of, um, taking a time out to just be mindful of a candle, the breath, yes. something simple, you know, yeah. the light in the room, yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. And a minute or two might be all you could manage initially. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I probably at this stage, I've been meditating for most of the year last year and probably about 15 to 20 minutes a day is, is, is what I do. It doesn't always work, but it's more often than not it does. Yeah. And it's like a timeout. And I think that for me is a willingness, a willingness to, to honor your experience with conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. So by writing, you have a willingness to put out on paper an honest understanding of your experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, with meditation, a willingness to honor your experience by being present to all that's there. Mm -hmm. And it may be that a candle is an anchor or the breath is an anchor, but around that anchor is the rising, falling waves crashing in of, of, of grief, of numbness, of sadness, of other experiences, of wanting to retrieve life, of wanting to engage in everyday life, of wanting to have ordinariness as well yeah it's not just about regaining the best of what we've had but also just to have ordinary again a, a plain uh, dark chocolate digestive biscuit <laughs> and just enjoy it for what it is you yeah know, in yeah all its plainness and dark chocolatiness yeah yeah and and yeah i mean that 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 kind of coming back to the present moment can sometimes focus you um, there is actually one other thing that I've found useful, and that is very small intentional actions. The idea of goals, so 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 my sister died at the end of November, so the idea of New Year's resolutions did not even enter my head this year. But what does help sometimes is, you know, a, a small intentional action that will just keep me focused in the moment here and now whether it's something as simple as putting away dishes or whether it's filing something or reading a paragraph in a book or you know taking a short walk 
but it's the smallest of things, you know, and it's, it's the feeling of, I can do this. Yeah. Because there is a, for a, a period after a, after a death, I think there can be a sort of a, a stultifying, yeah. you know, feeling of being stuck. Yes, or even know. surrendering to the chaos and the helplessness. Yeah. And I know that the one of the kind of strength points within potentially traumatic experiences for people is the, well, I was helpful. Mm-hmm. When you can find in a traumatic experience how you were helpful, mm-hmm. how you did what you could, yeah. how you tried to make a difference, mm-hmm. those things really, really protect us against carrying uh, post-traumatic stress. Yeah. I think after a death, you know, having the arrangements to make, yes. having all the little details, you know, if there are readings to be had, who says the readings? If someone wants to, to have a eulogy and say some kind and loving words about the person, who who says it and who puts it together? Purpose, purpose, purpose. Yeah. yeah. And again, maybe that is the mop, so I don't want to denigrate <clears throat> the mop, as well as the, the, the bucket of overflowing tears mm-hmm. there is a place for the not there's a place for purpose the yeah. small gains oh, yeah. here was an untidy space now it's tidy oh i can affect change absolutely and, and and those some of those rituals can be can be quite helpful you know um and and you know even the the ritual of somebody giving you a card or having a mass set for you or you know, or, or even as simple as saying, I'm sorry for your loss. These kind of rituals are are important. I you never know? understood and, that particular ritual. It's a very Irish one where mm-hmm. people line up and they, they shake hands and they very often go with that one mm-hmm. line, I'm sorry for your loss. Mm-hmm. I never understood it till I was on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. My, my, my dad died and were people coming up and I know they were coming up uncomfortably some of them and mm-hmm. nervously some of them yeah and awkwardly some of them and I just thought oh the effort mm-hmm. to walk up nervously to this family yeah and shake their hands in a way of I care but I'm afraid I, I'm not even familiar with this ritual but I'm going to do it anyway yeah I just yeah. thought there was so such a beautiful humanity to that absolutely and 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 that there's well two things I've noticed there one is is having experienced it you feel in the moment like you're at the center of the world you know and and there is an element of feeling that when somebody close to you dies you know at the center of my world something awful has happened and so having a a line of people come up and condole with you for that you know can be very helpful sadly it it couldn't happen during during COVID, and um, I, I, I mean, loss in it, it's a, that's a loss. Yeah, it is a loss of 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 a, a pretty good ritual, I think, mm. um, that can help. But the other thing about, as you described them, some of those mopping up things, those taking care of things at the end of the fu- uh, during the funeral, um, is when all of that is finished, and then the next day, and that's an, a, another little bit of a loss because. Yeah you you have all this attention for a couple of days mm-hmm. and then you feel oh everyone's gone now mm-hmm. and now i'm alone or i'm here with my wife or i'm here and it's just us yeah. and it's back to you. and it's at that point the slamming door was almost appropriate there yes. in the background i'm yeah. thinking it's at that point that you realize now i have to reconstruct you know and and, and there is it's like a period of reconstruction you know, you're having to 
rebuild a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual map mm. of the world. Yes. That in some way is different. It doesn't have the physical presence of this person anymore. Yeah. It may have lots of emotional presence and that, but you still have to reform and reconstruct that map. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating process and it's a v an extremely challenging process. Um, and anyone out there who's going through that, you, you have my, my heartfelt sympathy and empathy. Um, as I do feel myself going through it at the moment in a very big way. For sure, for sure. And again, I think it is okay to go into the cave for a little while. It is okay to be numb for a while. Hmm. We are afraid of those things in, in mental health because we hmm. associate them with people owning that as the singular and only truth for a prolonged period towards depression. Mm -hmm. But I think that we have to honor and give space to grief being very, very different in nature to depression. Yeah. And, and yeah. a loving sadness is, is a fantastic thing that humanity has mm. for those we, we lose. So, yes. you know, I think it's important for anyone listening to this, going through similar losses to the ones you've been experiencing, Peter, to remember that it's a loving sadness. Yes. It's what you're experiencing and that's well worth honoring. And it's, it's natural. You know, almost anything that you feel, anger, resentment, bitterness, sadness, joy, relief, guilt, shame, you know, all of these different things, I have to be honest, I have felt them in the last number of months and in, in bucket loads at times. And it is natural to have those feelings, you know, and being able to i can't can't say i can honestly just accept those things all the time in the moment sometimes i reject them but it is natural to have this mass of at times overwhelming feelings if we can breathe into them allow grief maybe to be in our body in our minds and realize that it is a process it is something that we that we go through i think that might be a yeah a fair bit to have to have covered for yes, for today absolutely. i hope um, and it will prompt uh, thoughts from other people as well mm -hmm. we'd love to understand how other people find their ways of navigating true seas of grief uh, and, and ways that work for them we'd love to hear from people in relation to that as well because a lot of what we share what you've shared today peter is very very personal obviously and i think it's uh it's a great thing for you to share, to, to offer that uh, to, to others. And I hope that others can be, you know, can consider that they have things to offer us and, and to offer others who might listen along the way. So this thing of, of grief is an individual thing, but it is also for every human being to experience. Absolutely. It's a, it's a collective thing as well. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you.